0: to the Huntsback Country Podcast. This is episode number 231, and we're talking with Darren Cooper. As you'll hear, Darren has been on the podcast a couple times before, and honestly, this show kind of came about spur of the moment, kind of last minute. You know, back last month in May, we did bonus episodes on Fridays talking about firearm-related topics, and I thought we were done with that in the month of May, but Steve and I were chatting and just kind of personally wanted to talk with Darren about a few things and we thought, what the heck, let's just turn this into a podcast, let's get Darren on the show and chat about a variety, really, of rifle-related topics, which is what we get into today. So here you go, another bonus Friday episode on firearms. Hope you guys enjoy this one. There's a lot in here, be it building rifles, caliber and cartridge selection, shooting tips, scope setup. Uh, gear rentals like we just are all over the place again this was a, a pretty informal just kind of guys hanging out with microphones type conversation so hope you enjoy this one I personally learned quite a few things I'm excited about it so thanks as always for tuning in if you have any questions reach out at any time just shoot us an email the podcast at xomountaingear.com here's the show with Darren Cooper Darren welcome back to the Hunted Back Country podcast how are you, man
1: doing good Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me back.
0: Yeah, man. You were on uh, a couple times previously. I actually noted it down just in case listeners want to check it out. But in uh, episode 123, we talked with you about critical factors of broadhead flight, which is, uh, even for this time of year, that'd be a great episode to go back to as guys are maybe working on bow setups, arrow setups, tuning. So that's a fun one on broadhead flight. And then in episode 169, we talked uh, with you about... um, uh, your sheep hunt in the Frank church and told that story and it was a heck of an adventure. And now we're back for number three, man.
1: Cool. Well, yeah. Thanks for having a uh, repeat offender on. <laughs> <laughs>
2: have you, uh, going back to arrow setup, have you done anything, made any changes to your setup in the last few years?
1: I really haven't. I'm, yeah. you know, I've been pretty static on my arrow setup for, for quite a while. I'm running, um, the FMJ injections. Um, I'm still running, uh, the four blade, um uh what the heck are they the, the little four blade steel broadheads it's been so long since i've i've changed i can't remember what the heck they're called but slick uh, tricks yeah the slick slick trick standard you gotcha. the 100 or the 125 and i always try to get to about 150 grains up front with uh, the inserts i'm using the titanium inserts insert mm-hmm. outserts for the uh those injections and then um I'm running typically a a four-vein setup with uh, the AAE, um, kind of their mid-sized vein, not the super high-profile ones, but um, yeah, their Hmm. mid-sized vein and uh, with some helical on there and, and that generally nets all the drag that i need to steer those things and get really good accuracy out to you know as far as i want to shoot so
2: yeah have you seen the new uh easton's new arrow what is that thing called so it's an acc but revised
1: right right yeah Yeah. i have those and i've heard really good things about them i've just yeah i got a pile of of uh those injections so i haven't changed yet but the acc shafts have always probably been the straightest the most consistent for spine they're not quite as durable as as the uh, the fmj style Mm -hmm. but um, and they tend to be a little bit lighter overall so there's kind of a a little bit of a trade-off there but as far as just pure accuracy and and um, just extremely consistent spine those those acc shafts are probably even a step above like your normal injections or the yeah or the fmj injections great shaft
2: yeah i saw those come out and to me an fmj has always been just a touch heavier than i want i prefer to be around 4 15 i saw those come out and was pretty excited about them
1: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah if you're if you like a lighter shaft that is definitely the way to go the, yeah you know yeah I, sh- I shot just accs for years and years and years for hunting and they were always just super accurate. Mm, so, nice. Yeah.
0: Well, if guys uh, missed previous episodes, Darren, go ahead and tell us a little bit about just your background briefly. I know we've hit on it in other episodes, but we have a bunch yeah. of new listeners since then. So, uh, yeah, start with maybe the the archery side of that background.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, I've been uh, just shooting competitive archery since really the early 90s, and then uh, went to work as an engineer for Hoyt Archery in um, 1999, I believe, yeah, and uh, worked for them for about 10 years, primarily designing uh, all bow components, but I I, uh, was primarily the cam expert, but I designed risers and limb systems and, you know, worked on the carbon bows and a little bit of everything, but uh, spent 10 years with them, and you know, shot professionally throughout that that timeline, and um, and then started writing articles and stuff for. I uh, was a technical editor for Eastman's Bow Hunting. Um, wrote a bunch for Bow and Arrow Magazine. with Joe Bell helped him on his um, his big book that he wrote, Technical Bow Hunting, um, and then went on to uh, uh, work with. Western Hunter magazine and Rock Slide, and um, I've written a, a pile of articles for those guys too. So, and a few other magazines here and there, but
0: we don't have like this uh, exact outline for today's show, but like there's this big theme that kept coming up, I guess, with Steve and I. And um, I think you're ahead of us in that, but. You know we've done more rifle related content in the podcast over the past few years and even you know steve and i personally kind of getting a little bit deeper into that world both of us having grown up shooting rifles but just not getting deep into it um and i know that you with an engineering background and then a very specific archery background competitively hunting and all that also went through that um and you know got deeper and deeper into the rifle world as well did you kind of grow up shooting rifles or was that kind of a a truly late addition or just something you got into that kind of the deep dive something uh later on
1: i grew i grew up shooting rifles quite a bit um my stepdad actually owned a pawn shop when i was growing up and so we we had access to all kinds of guns because he was constantly buying and selling and trading stuff and so um as a kid you know i always shot ten twenty twos and you know bb guns and shot all the time. I had a, my grandma lived down in the snake river. So in the summer times, my mom would drop me off down there and just turn me loose with, you know, 5,000 BBs. And, you know, when I was little, and then after that graduated 22s and stuff, and then started out rifle hunting for for deer here in Idaho and um, killed my first several deer um, back to back to back with, with a rifle. So I was into rifle somewhat but then fairly early on in um in high school I, I picked up a bow and and that really um took all my attention I mean I, my first you know close encounter with a bow was just so intense and and uh, you know took the adrenaline off the off the charts compared to what I'd already experienced rifle hunting so that kind of swept me off my feet for a while, but I was still always, you know, had a soft spot and, and an interest in, and was intrigued by, by rifles and especially long range, you know, accurate rifles, bench rest rifles, anything that's, that's accurate kind of always, you know, piques my interest. So I just never had really time to, uh, to, to get into it uh, in a big way while I was working at Voight and shooting professionally and doing a lot of writing and all that kind of stuff so it it uh, was really after I left Hoyt when I had really the opportunity time-wise but then also the the real impetus was um you know I I really wanted to do some wolf hunting and I didn't feel like uh being successful with the bow right off the bat was was very likely so that was really um kind of pushed me over the edge like hey there's this is a really good reason to go build a long range rifle and and start dabbling my feet in that so yeah probably like in 2009 2010 is when i um, got into long range shooting
0: we chatted with uh, steve from hammer bullets recently on the podcast and he had a similar background where he was doing competitive archery and really deep into the archery world and you know he even said in that show it's like he got into long range shooting and drew a lot of parallels bow hunting with that which at first it sounds funny because you're going from this very close encounter to then these extended distances but i think there's so much in terms of you know guys who go deep into the bow hunting world and like you have obviously to a crazy level being an actual engineer and working on um, the design of bows or even just you know a hobbyist who takes it seriously Right. There's all these technical aspects to set up and understanding arrow flight or, you know, bullet flight and all that, where really getting into precision rifles does relate to bow hunting in a lot of ways. Cause you're looking at all the variables, all the equipment doing the tuning. And, uh, there's just a lot in common there, even though the distances are, are much different.
1: Yeah, there's, there, there are definitely a, a lot of parallels from, from technical aspects, but even, um, you know, in, in understanding the flight of an arrow and, the, you know, the flight of a bullet, I mean, there's so many similarities. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, they they definitely overlap. And, and um, you know, from a competitive standpoint, you know, when I started shooting PRS events, I felt like I had a, a really big advantage over a lot of the competitors out there because I'd competed at such a high level in the archery world. You know, once you kind of understand the mental aspects of shooting and all of that kind of stuff, it really, you know, helped me hit the ground running when I when I picked up a rifle and decided to go, you know, shoot those events. So I think there's, you know, any number of parallels can be drawn between the, 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 the two sports, and certainly there's big differences as well. But I think um, one certainly prepares you toward the other, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely a lot more technical on the on the actual shot execution and the shooting side with a bow um, but I think they're equally as technical if not even more technical and, and more detail-oriented on the rifle side when it comes to really uh, eking the most out of a, out of a rifle so um, yeah it's it's, uh, it's it's really fun for me just was new you know I mean uh, you know everybody can get to a little bit of a burnout point at, at some time with if you do too much one thing for a long time and so rifles um, kind of gave me just a new a new breath and and um, something new to focus on and that was really interesting and that just helped me dive in you know full boat and learn everything I could and get involved with you know some of the best companies and some of the best shooters out there and really learn from some of those guys and be able to take take that stuff out and and go apply it and learn and and um you know form some of my own opinions on on what works and what doesn't so it was it's been a lot of fun i've I've really enjoyed it
2: Mm -hmm. yeah exactly where i'm at it's been fun just getting into learning something new yeah
0: yeah yeah it's deceiving too because the like the barrier to entry is much rifle uh much rifle is much lower for rifles right so if you take a guy who has zero experience with either rifles or archery and say he's just going to get started hunting. And, you know, with either weapon platform, it's probably easier to get going uh, with a rifle, obviously. But as you said, they can be as technical, if not more technical in the long run when you really start to take that deep dive. So, yes, that initial barrier to entry is lower, but as you get deeper and deeper and deeper, you realize it's that hole's just as deep as it is on the bow side and tuning and all the details there
1: yeah i i tend to agree um you can you can set a, a first time shooter up on a bench with the rifle and and um you know help them build a, a solid rest there and and have them shoot some pretty good groups right off the bat um but archery's come a long ways i mean it used to take guys a long time to get proficient with a bow and now i feel like there's enough information out there. The equipment's good enough. Um, there's enough people around that know how to set it up decent that, you know, guys can be out, you know, shooting to 40 or 50 yards and in a matter of weeks. Um, so they've both come along a long way. I mean, archery's come a really long ways. Rifles are still, you know, obviously for a brand-new guy, it's it's easy to get them on target, and, and um, there's a lot less influence from the shooter on a rifle than there is a bow that's you know hmm. that's one thing that's kind of nice about being able to set up a rifle for multiple people they don't have to tune it to the individual whereas a bow you definitely um, have those factors that play in you know draw length and how they grip the bow and it you know it's going to tune different in my hand than your hand so
2: what yeah what have you seen as a an extreme spread of you sight a rifle in hand it to your buddy and he shoots, you know, say you're shooting 600 yards. Like what's the most you've ever seen that the rifle shoots differently? Cause I've,
1: um, I haven't done a lot of that. I mean, yeah. generally when I'm out shooting with people, they tend to have their own rifles, but right. I've, I mean, I've had, I thrown my wife behind my rifle and she has virtually zero experience. And I've had her shoot groups with, um, my target rifle and, She'll shoot within, you know, a quarter or three eighths of an inch of me at a hundred yards, if not, you know, right on top of my groups. So, um, with a lighter hunting rifle, you might see more at extended distance because recoil management becomes a lot more, uh, critical with a, with a lightweight rifle, you know, especially if it doesn't have a break and whatnot, you can, um, your setup can, can definitely cause, um, you know, a left or a right, or you know, a high shot if if you're not in the rifle consistently every time. But mm-hmm. the heavier the rifle and the better the brake, the less those differences tend to be.
2: Mm, okay, that makes sense. So,
1: yeah, yeah, that's part of the reason why when we're building target rifles for PRS events, they weigh 17, 18, 19, 20 pounds. Um, you know, we have these huge fat barrels on them that um, it's just. The, the inertia um, of the rifle that resists that recoil and then you put a big old you know super loud nasty brake on them too to kill any as much of that recoil as possible and, and uh, just minimize the amount of motion that happens when when the rifle's fired and also makes it easier to to uh, track your impacts and, and see those impacts through the mm-hmm. scope which is extremely critical
2: so from coming from prs to practical hunting what's a What's your rifle ideal weight?
1: Uh, I don't really have an ideal weight. Um, it's it's a trade off, you know. Obviously, yeah. we want lightweight rifles that are easy to pack, um, but there is a point where you know if you're shooting, um, especially a larger magnum cartridge, that you might want some more weight. And you know, I've got mm-hmm. a buddy with a titanium three thirty eight. Uh, Lapua and we came to realize that thing is really hard to shoot groups with and so he's been you know he put a heavier scope on it and and did some things and we changed the brake and did um, whatever we could to kind of help control that recoil now that magically the rifle shoots better that's not really the case the rifle probably shoots as the same as it always did but Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to manage the the, uh, the blow that you're taking from that thing when it's launching a 300 grain burger at you know 2800 feet a second
0: that'll thump a little bit
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah you're gonna feel that one so yeah um you know with a moderate sized cartridge you know something like a 6.5 prc shooting 140 grain bullet or something in that class you can certainly get away with a lighter rifle or a you know a 6.5 creedmoor for instance you know you could probably shoot that on about as light a platform as you want to but when you start getting up into 28 nozzlers and um, you know the 300 prc and some of those things with heavy bullets you really kind of need to start balancing that weight out and um, you know think about controlling the recoil because that's on those magnum cartridges that's where that gets to be a little bit more important and it's definitely going to affect your your consistency at at long range there's
0: this uh like this is personal but there's this balance between like complexity and simplicity like what are the things as we talk about rifles can be as technical or maybe more technical than archery you can go on this crazy deep dive and there's endless, it seems, details and variables that you could pursue to kind of achieve optimal um, or achieve preci- precision. What are some of those things that are maybe small details, but that can have a massive impact? So we don't want to be chasing our tails for necessarily inconsequential gains, especially in the hunting world versus, as you said, like bend rest or PRS or something like that. But-, but what are some of those finer points that you found, like, because I know you've you know, again, very detail oriented engineering mind have tried a lot of things. Just what are some of those things that come to mind of like these small things truly can make a big difference. And that could be equipment and setup related. It could be skills and knowledge. Like, you know, you mentioned recoil management, but, uh, what comes to mind there?
1: Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of small things that, that add up, but I, I would say probably, you know, one of the things that, that, messes people up in both archery and and rifles that's fairly simple but it's scope setup you know if you don't mount your optic properly and get it leveled properly um you know you're going to have issues you know on on your bow if you you don't set up your third axis correctly um, you're going to have issues but if you don't get your your reticle um your your vertical stadia if you don't get that true to vertical with whatever leveling device you have on the rifle you know one degree of cant is 10 inches at a thousand yards so that's that's something that's that's pretty critical Um, another thing that's that's relatively a simple concept but a lot of people i think get wrong is most guys want to zero their rifle at 250 or 300 yards or something like that and Coming from a target background in both archery and and rifles, and and I've come to understand that really a hundred yard zero is a lot more practical. And if you want to walk around with your rifle zeroed at at two hundred and fifty yards or whatever, you know, it's easy to dial up you know a minute and a half and just leave your scope set there. Um, that hundred yard zero is easy to check at whether you're at ten thousand feet or you're at sea level in the desert or something like that and it'll be consistent uh, much more consistent i guess than trying to reset a 250 or 300 yard zero because that will be affected by your atmospherics and stuff Hmm. uh, depending on where you're at and so um, a hundred yard zero is something that i recommend to virtually everyone um, when they're setting up their rifles Um, there's really no reason to zero it at 200 or 300 or anything like that that's what the dial is for and if you want to like i said hunt with your rifle at zero to 250 you can still do that by dialing it but you need to have a a zero that's repeatable and testable in the field if you know if you go miss a shot um and you're hunting at you know high altitude or something like that you want to be able to go check that rifle is still hitting where you expect it to and if everything's based on a hundred yards, it's a lot easier to make calculations and whatnot to set up, you know, your ballistic info and range finders and, and every ballistics program out there is going to be more effective with, with a hundred yard zero. Um,
2: interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's, there's a ton of other, you know, detail type stuff that, that, um, is pretty important to, um, Small stuff. I don't know. There's, geez. Um, first, setting up rifles. I mean, a good quality barrel is gonna is gonna get you the most bang for your buck off of uh, you know over anything. Pretty much anything that you can do. If you're gonna change one thing on a rifle, I would put a good high quality aftermarket barrel on there and have it have have it chambered by a good gunsmith that really knows what he's doing that can set that up and. Um, you know not only headspace it correctly but also give you the the bullet jump that you want for the bullet that you plan on using and and uh throat that throat that barrel so that you can you know shoot the length of rounds that that your gun is capable of and and uh, do everything that you want with the chosen bullet that you want to use a lot of factory chambers are are really a um a, a big compromise uh of the cartridge and so when you custom chamber a rifle you can get a heck of a lot more out of it if you know what bullet you're going to shoot and um you know especially if you do some different things to the to the magazine and whatnot to give give yourself a little bit more room to play in there so that's another thing that a lot of people probably miss on um even custom building a rifle they just have a a factory chamber built on those and then they get you know, factory type performance out of them, but there's a lot more um, performance available in a lot of these just factory cartridges.
0: Yeah. That's one thing that I've overlooked. And even, you know, in the past we've had discussions on differences between factory rifles and custom builds. And you can look at that from a variety of different ways and just talk about uh, tolerances and all that. But what you just hit on there in terms of being able to very specifically understand what you're going to be shooting, uh, down to the bullet and the length. And as you talked about, um, you know, jump and all that, like that custom chamber can be a huge part of, um, the benefits of being able to do a custom build. But again, that takes some forethought and you knowing what you actually want to do to really get the benefit out of that. Right. Like if you don't, if you don't know, I want to shoot this bullet and I want this twist and I want you know, this type of jump and I'm working with this, you know, potential mag length, that type of deal, that benefits lost. But as you get in more and more to understanding those things, it really becomes apparent how going with a custom build and, you know, custom chamber and all that can
1: be really advantageous. Yeah. And I think, you know, just starting out with a, a custom barrel on on a rifle and learning some of the basic skills of reloading and some of that is a really good place to start for a lot of guys. And Get your feet wet, start understanding, you know, how, how it all works, you know, get a decent scope and, and go out there and, and do some shooting and, and just get some experience on it. And over time you start um, building up your knowledge base and understanding what's really important and what's, you know, what's less important. So I think another thing a lot of guys tend to do is um, we're, all, we're all susceptible to, uh, you know, falling in love with hot rods. And what I've found out over the years is they're just um, they're a little more finicky and they're not nearly as much fun to shoot. And I think guys that get a lot more out of, out of uh, owning something that's a little tamer, uh, maybe not as high a performance, maybe doesn't have the, the massive you know ballistic advantages of some of the super magnums, but they're gonna shoot it a lot more, um, and they're gonna probably, through that process of shooting more, reloading more, they're going to learn a lot more, um, about, you know, every aspect of their shooting and and reloading. And so I would, if I could give guys some advice, it would be, you know, Hey, start somewhere in the middle. Um, I, I fell prey to that. You know, I, I, my first long range rifle was a seven mm STW, which is, pretty much a twin of a 28 nozzler. Awesome ballistically, you know, 3,100 feet a second with a 180 grain bullet. And, you know, I could run over 3,000 with a 195 grain burger. But the case design of, uh, well, it's not really the case design, it's the case capacity of those, you know, super magnums usually doesn't produce super consistent burn and the the real consistent velocities that you need to to be able to make first round hits on, on targets at extended ranges. And then the recoil management piece of it, um, shooting a heavy Magnum will, will teach you a lot about recoil management, I guess, but um, you know, shooting 15 or 20 rounds a day out of one of those is, is going to wear you down and, and it's just not that much fun. And and I think you'll find yourself shooting less because of that.
0: Yeah. Do you want to hit on, cartridges a little bit more I want to go back to a couple of things and just hit a little bit more detail on things you mentioned in passing one is I've never thought of combining the idea of like a fixed zero say 100 yard zero and basically like a maximum point blank range strategy by essentially yeah. zeroing at 100 but then kind of leaving your dial um, set at what you need for that maximum point blank range because we've yeah. talked about both of those and pros and cons but I don't know that I've actually thought about that hybrid approach so that's super interesting
1: that's what I typically do when I'm out hunting because uh, again I'm using a hundred yard zero, but I know from experience that um, you don't always have time to reach up and and grab the dial. So so yeah, dialing to your you know your maximum point blank range to where you can hold in the center of the target and still expect to to, to land in the in the kill zone for you know, your average shooting distances, then, um, that, that gives you a pretty big advantage. So it kind of gives you the best of both worlds. And then if you need to, you can you know dial up from there as needed for a longer range shot or even hold over if, if, you know, you're pretty sure, Hey, that thing's at 400. So now I can hold, you know, at the top of the lungs and, and still drop it in there without having to really, um, you know, go looking at a, at a chart or anything like that. So it gives you that quick, hunting um flexibility but you're you still have the dial if you need it so yeah
2: going back to leveling the scope is there a like i think i just have a it's like the wheeler level 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 or something like that yeah. um is there something you found that's more precise than that i mean i felt like it was uh kind of got me close so. enough but yeah
1: um so i i've got that system and 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 i've got a A system made by uh, they—they were called Extreme Hardcore Gear. They're up um, up in northern Idaho, and I don't—I think they changed their name because that sounds like a porn site. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, I'm sure I'm sure you can still look them up by that. They're—they're actually, I think they're affiliated. Well, I know they're affiliated with Alpine Archery too. But Mm. anyway, they make a level that sits in the action. And that's usually where I start. Is you know I'll, I'll set the action level in there, and then I can put that Wheeler level on the barrel, lock it in, and then that action level I can I can get that out of the way, hmm. and then um, I'll set I'll set the scope level roughly by you know pulling the cap off and then setting a level on that. But then the way that I've the best way that I've found to uh, finish that a buddy of mine showed me. So you can shoot. A high-powered flashlight or spotlight through the front objective and project an image of your reticle out the back of the scope and it'll project on a wall about three or four feet away and you can focus it with whatever your um, focusing mechanism is on the scope usually you have to back it quite a ways out so I'll set everything up in a vise and I'll and I'll project the image of my reticle onto the wall and then I've got a plumb bob there. Huh. And so that so the rifle is level by the action and then I can project that reticle and that reticle is really, you know, the most important piece of that. Mm-hmm. Um the erector tube and you know, there's a lot of tolerances that go with stacking stuff up. So I don't a hundred percent trust that level that I've set on top of the turret. Mm-hmm. And so usually it takes a, you know, there could be a degree or, or more difference between, you know, that level turret and what that reticle is actually doing. And so once I do that, um I line up the reticle with the plumb bob on the wall, and um You're good. You know, that's kind of my final level. Um, that's on the yeah. system.
2: That's awesome. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was so, just throwing that level on top, and I. You know, I'd stick it on and just get inconsistent results. And there's got to be a better way.
1: So many levels are not true. Like you Mm. can put them on like a granite table or something like that and then flip them 180 degrees and they don't read the same. Yeah. So one thing I like about that Wheeler system is at least you can calibrate the level on that one. You can adjust it until it repeats, you know, both Mm. directions. So that's a that is a good um, based system to use the level, at least you can make sure it's correct. But, um, bubble levels are extremely frustrating because about, I've found probably 75% of them are are not accurate. So the Mm -hmm. plumb bob and gravity and, and a real image of, of your reticle is, um, kind of the best way that I've found to make sure that things are, are real.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. We have to check that out.
0: Yeah. That last three minutes is like worth the price of admission for the entire show there. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. That's, I'd, n- I'd never heard of that. That's really cool.
1: Yeah. You need a powerful flashlight or you won't be able to, and a dark room or you won't be able to see it. Um, but a spotlight or, you know, like a stream light with a super high beam on it will, will work great. Just don't scratch your lens when you're doing it, but yeah, you can hold it up there and, and, uh, see exactly what's going on and get that reticle focused really good. It's like watching a slideshow and, or an old, the old uh, overhead projector that, that your teacher used to use, and that's kind of what it looks mm-hmm. like on the wall. Well, we're hitting scopes. What are
0: your uh, preferences on first, first, second focal plane specifically for hunting?
1: I'm a first focal plane guy. Yes, um, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: it makes so much yeah. more sense to me.
1: <laughs> it, it, it having accurate, um, you know, windage marks and, and and elevation marks in the scope at any power to me is just a no-brainer um it is nice to see one you know a consistent size reticle i understand that from a second focal plane for the second focal plane guys but um to me the information on that reticle is so much more important that it's accurate at regardless of power i'm at is is you know far more important and the other thing is i rarely want to shoot at uh, an animal or a target at max power unless i'm you know, doing bench rest work at a hundred yards, you know, on initial load workup or something like that. Um, I'm not shooting on max power. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to have accurate wind holds unless, you know, I was at exactly half power or something like that. And it was easy to, to convert it in my head, but that's just, that's just extra math that I don't want to have to do. So I want, you know, one mil on my scope to look like one mil regardless.
2: Um, yeah, that's what, I said I went through the same same thing that I just had two different scopes first first focal plane second focal plane I was like and I was hunting with the second focal plane one just going like this is like in the heat of the moment I don't want to have to like at the last second go oh crap am I on full magnification <laughs> right uh, and then I, I was down at shot show and I was talking to a scope manufacturer because I was like specifically like okay I want to find a really good you know somewhat lightweight first focal plane and like do you guys have anything and he just looked at me like i'm stupid he's like oh no you don't need that for hunting you just need a second focal plane like really (laughs) this doesn't like to me it just doesn't make sense you know i yeah Uh,
1: but i i don't think it's caught on so much in the hunting side because so much of our hunting market is back east and mm -hmm. you know a 500 yard shot back there is like you know what what airport runway are you hunting on (laughs) i can't see that far you know uh, you know, granted there's some there's some larger fields back there and whatnot. I mean, a lot of the long range shooting stuff did originate in the Midwest, Oklahoma, and some of those places, beanfield rifles back in the day. But mm. um I just yeah, in general it hasn't caught on as much back there and, and that's where the big numbers are. So gotcha. it'll take a while. Hopefully hopefully we'll start seeing some more first focal planes in those lighter weight, um, mid size scopes, because right now there's very limited availability.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I remember talking to uh, Sworo Rep too, and he said uh, first focal plane is actually an easier scope to build. Something to do with less lenses in there, um, mm-hmm. which didn't make sense to me. But um, yeah, so technically they're they're easier to build, but it's one of those weird things that they end up charging more for them in the end. So
1: yeah, <laughs> usually charges at least a hundred bucks more for first focal plane.
2: Yeah, what's your go to scope then?
1: Um, I don't well. I've been running Vortex on most of my rifles. So I run uh, the Vortex uh, Gen 2 Razor on my target rifles. Um, and then I've got um, a bunch of the Gen 2 PSTs that are first focal plane. Those are really good. I, like, I really like the Vortex reticle. Um, They're EBR 2C reticles. They're pretty simple. They're, they've got the Christmas tree you know, below that is really nice for um you know doing your wind holds and whatnot. Um really good scope. There's a there's a ton of good ones out there. That's just what I have the most experience with. Yeah. Um I've I've got some of the um uh, the razor uh LHT their their second focal plane scopes. I've got some of those on on uh, some of our rifles that we that we rent out and um there that's a really nice good glass lightweight scope it is a second focal plane but it's it's a little simpler for guys that aren't um used to looking at a busy reticle Mm -hmm. and so for a rental scope i felt like that was a pretty good starter place but i've ended up i think i've swapped half of those out for the uh the pst um Mm -hmm. Gen two PSTs now too, which is just a it's a good all around scope. I've run it on my um, some of my target rifles as well. Um, I think I ran that on my twenty two and the twenty two nationals, and um, took second place at the nationals with that scope. And they track really well. Uh, the glass is good, and it's hard to beat the price on them, especially right now. I, I think they're getting ready to come out with a new version of their um, the PST because they're blowing those things out pretty cheap right now. Hmm. And they've got a new scope out that's even cheaper, um, that has a bunch of the high-end features, which kind of shocked me at first. I was was curious what their... uh, what Vortex was doing, because it seemed like it was going to cannibalize a lot of the Gen 2 PST sales, but now it appears that they've got a new version of that. Maybe it'll have locking turrets, which is really the only thing that the Gen 2 PST didn't have was a you know locking locking mechanism on on uh, the windage and and elevation turret so that's something i i do like on a hunting scope because when it's riding around on your pack it's pretty easy for a dial to get spun so if there's some way to lock that um, that's something that uh, is desirable in my mind or at least a capped windage turret um, and then if the elevation dial gets spun, that's something you'll usually spot and you can, most of mm-hmm. them have a, a zero stop and you can spin it back to zero pretty quick and go from there. But, um, that windage turret is something that's bit friends of mine, you know, when they're going in, they finally get a shot and they've been carrying the rifle for four or five days on their pack. And all of a sudden they're full revolution off huh, on their <laughs> windage turret. And they send <laughs> and it's like, what County did that hit in? You know? Yeah. So
0: yeah. What's um I'd love just to chat a little bit about like not necessarily shooting positions, but just uh shooting support like in the field again, hunting situations. Um I know you've used tripods. I've never shot off a tripod. Um I'm curious what you found with that. I mean I've I've used bipods, I've used my pack, yeah. I have um like an adapter that converts my trekking poles into shooting sticks, you know, wouldn't I need more height, that type of thing. Um, so feel free to hit on any of the above, but I definitely want to do like, talk about what you found in terms of shooting off a tripod.
1: Yeah. Tripods are a game changer. I feel like if you have a tripod in your kit, that's a good, solid shooting tripod. You can set up a good, solid rest in virtually any position. And there's so many cases when a bipod just isn't going to cut it. I mean, Mm um, you've got to be kind of on a ridge top and have, you know, hardly any ground cover and a fairly tall bipod to to make it work in a lot of situations. So when I'm hunting, I do, I always have a bipod on my rifle, but it's going to be a taller bipod than what most guys are, are accustomed to carrying because there's just a lot of times when you need that extra height to, to get over, um, you know, whatever obstructions are in the way, or if you're shooting downhill, which often hunters are hunting from the top down, you know, you need to get that front of the rifle up a little bit higher, um, because your butt of the rifle is, you know, the, the slope of the hill. A lot of times you're shooting down. So, um, it's just a lot of guys underestimate, um, what it's going to take to set up a, a good solid position in rugged terrain. And, and, um, so, more bipod height is is probably you know one of my first recommendations but a good solid shooting tripod is a a total game changer and really they don't weigh much more than a than you know the typical tripods that you carry but that extra two pounds is worth its weight in gold when you need uh, when you need to shoot over you know you could be walking around in some tall sagebrush and you know, the difference between an offhand shot or one on a, on a tripod is there's, there's no comparison. I mean, I can, I can ring a 10-inch plate, you know, 10 out of 10 times at 500 yards off a tripod, but you'd be lucky to hit it once offhand, you know, or mm-hmm. you know, off your buddy's back or whatever, whatever else you're going to try to cobble together to, to make some of those shots. So um, it's definitely worth packing something like that. And, um, uh, the other thing is, is, you know, just a, a good versatile bag that you can carry. Um, there's not a whole lot of lightweight shooting bags out there right now. Um, but you can make, you know, you can make something or, you know, find something on online. There's, there's some options out there, but something that has a shape that's, um, Uh, rectangular so you've got at least three different heights that are kind of built into the bag and um, just having something that you can throw under that's a little more dense and better than your jacket wadded up Um, something that's easy to control the height of the rear of the rifle Um, you know a a cordura type type of uh, a cover on it and then a lightweight fill Um, but yeah a good shooting bag is is you know the really the the second most important thing. And, and then if you can swing having a tripod, that would be um, something that you would quickly fall in love with.
0: When it comes to a shooting tripod versus a glassing tripod, are you just getting extra stability, extra durability? Like with that extra two pounds, yeah, what, what is it that you're going for getting out of that?
1: Well, you're getting more height typically and then generally a lot larger diameter um, legs on them so i'm running the primarily run the really right stuff tripods they're carbon tripods and they're extremely stable um i've seen you know 200 pound guys hang off of them with their feet off the ground and bounce um like a shot show you know just to show how tough they are and what they can handle but you know when when i'm shooting a prs match or whatever we're putting a 20 pound rifle on those things and and it they don't hardly wiggle. I mean, so they, you know, they're not going to shake in the wind and they're going to handle the, the cantilever, you know, weight of a rifle. If things aren't perfectly balanced, Um, ideally you want to get that rifle as close to the balance point in it. When you set it in a tripod as possible, you know, and there's lots of different mounting systems out there. Uh, The best is, you know, if you have some kind of an ARCA rail or a, a Picatinny rail that's, set just ahead of your magazine in the rifle real close to the balance point but then there's the um, the clamp style adapters too and and uh, we have some of those clamps that work really well and then um, the field optics research they've got some really good new tripod systems that are about half the cost of the really right stuff and um, they're made overseas but they're a pretty good um, option if if you just can't swing the money for the u.s made really right stuff i mean the really right stuff for as good as it gets from a tripod Uh, quality uh, durability lack of wiggle they put a lot of effort into uh, making those things right for guys that you know they started out in photography but they've gotten heavy into the shooting side of of the world and and i was actually looking at their some of their quick release mounts back when i was working for hoyt and designing uh a uh, quick release quiver years ago because they were the like the best most expensive but the best um, tripod company out there and camera attachment company back then and so i was looking at them for for quiver stuff but now they've gotten into the rifles and they do awesome stuff were you we gonna say steve i think i cut you off
2: uh i was gonna reference kodiak getting up there and um yeah. basically the you just, mm. the second we landed on Kodiak, like a bipod is completely and utterly worthless here. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. There's almost, uh, we're, you know, you're in brush that's chest deep. Um, I mean, we almost got to the point where you, like you literally had to, uh, you know, you didn't stop in glass unless it was an area that like, it was at least somewhat you could shoot from. Cause it was, yeah. it was such a different, um, you know, I'm used to Idaho where, uh, you know, we don't have the ground cover like you do there. Yeah. You can yeah. lay down in some spots, and up there it was it was different. I mean, you had to completely change how you hunted because um, really it was yeah you didn't stop to glass until it was a spot that you could shoot from because it was it was kind of pointless like oh there's yep. a there but it's going to disappear in one second and I can't shoot from here so there's no point in stopping.
1: Yeah, yeah. another good thing with those those uh, tripods is you can attach them to the front of the rifle too. Like the really right stuff tripods that I run, they they use the same. They've got a Picatinny attachment and a it's a combo clamp, so it'll clamp on a Picatinny rail or an ARCA rail. Mm. So you can stick them on the front of your rifle and have just a really long bipod. If you're you know sitting on your butt at the top of a hill or something like that, you can just extend two of the legs out and have a super long bipod, mm. which is cool. But and and they're awesome for glass, and that's the other thing that's nice about them is you can stand up glass with those things, and and uh, it's something that that's unique that that guys will at first kind of scoff at but once they realize how stable they are um they get used to it but they don't have a center column so you do have to adjust all three legs to get the height correct um but they're so much more stable the the center column is kind of the weak link in in tripods Mm -hmm. we all love them because they're quick and And you don't have to get the height nailed with all three legs. And you can throw that center column up and adjust it as you need. But um, you get used to not having that. And then you also, the other thing that's nice is when you're sitting down glassing, you don't have that center column sticking down in your lap, you know, getting in the way and getting bumped as you're glassing. So I kind of sit inside the tripod when I'm, you know, glassing with my binoculars and whatnot Mm. and um, having that extra real estate underneath the tripod for my legs and you know, not not hitting me is kind of nice. Also,
0: we hit on two things like in passing that I want to revisit and somewhat related. Um, you mentioned a renting rifles, so I want to talk about <laughs> what uh, what you have to offer there with rent guns and gear. But then, along with that, we, we talked earlier about cartridge selection. You know, versus going with these latest hot rods. Um, tie those together. Talk about rent guns and gear. What you guys offer, how that's set up, and then. As we talk about the rifles you do have there, I'm curious to hear why you selected the cartridges, um, you know, that are available through Rent Guns and Gear, because clearly you could have built or offered anything. So just tie that into the pros and cons of those cartridges um, that you did select
1: and why. Well, um, yeah, for for your listeners that aren't aware of of uh, the business that I have, it's it's Rent Guns and Gear. And it's uh the website is letter R guns, letter n gear dot com, r guns, and gear dot com. And we have a, a pretty wide selection of Western hunting equipment um for rent. Um it's basically about you know removing the barriers that prevent guys from going on their dream hunts or at least gearing up for those those dream hunts. We want to help guys um have the best equipment that they can have for their premium draw tags, or maybe they're taking a first time hunter out and, uh, the guy just doesn't have the equipment that he's, that he needs. And, and, um, as, as we all know, gear is, um, really expensive for the, for the good stuff. And, um, this is just a a cool way that guys can, can uh, try out some of the premium, Optics brands, um, backpacks, we're carrying exo Packs, of course, and uh, tents, shelters, sleeping bags. Um, you know, we've got a really wide range of, of stuff that guys need to go Western hunting. And um, for the first time ever, uh, to my knowledge, we're the first company that's ever rented long-range rifle systems which was a big lift and, and something that probably slowed us down from getting, um, getting our business launched, but, um, it's up and running now we've got a pretty good selection of really awesome custom long range rifles that, um, have all the best componentry and, and, uh, pieces and parts. And, and, um, we've really optimized everything to the extent possible to make these things, uh, ready to hunt when they show up to you. So, um, kind of a cool cool new thing that i think really helps us stand out from the crowd and what we're doing so um, those right uh those rifles are set up in um, various cartridges Uh, we've got 6.5 creedmoor 6.5 prc seven mm short action ultra mag or som as a lot of people call it uh and then we've got 300 wsm winchester short mag And that's our 30 caliber option. And then I've also got a 300, uh, or sorry, 338 Norman Mag and a 375 Ruger that I just built for Dangerous Game. Um, Almost all the rifles are built on titanium actions. We do have a few with uh, custom steel actions. And then uh, we're running carbon proof barrels on all of them. Um, Trigger Tech, uh, they're high end triggers. Um, And. good really good top end optics on all of them we're running vortex scopes on on most of them and and they're kind of uh a range of scopes depending on the individual rifle like our dangerous game rifle we've got uh one to eight power scope so that you can uh, be hunting in the brush for grizzly and and it's got a shorter barrel so you can swing it quick and and you know whack that bear before he whacks you (laughs) <laughs> um but most of the rifles are set up for um, you know longer range shooting uh, we've got dope charts and and rangefinder options so that um, you know if you've got a the conditions are right and and you feel good about your shooting you know you can stretch it out to 800 yards or you know as far as you feel confident in shooting the rifles are uh, tested out to a thousand yards um ballistically and then you know we set them up with range finders that that uh when you push the button and range a target it will factor in the temperature the air pressure from your altitude um, and those things and give you a solution that's that's accurate for for that shot angles you know all that stuff is factored in that's a little bit of an added cost for the range finder but we also have a dope chart that that uh you know if you're only shooting out to if you're only comfortable you know to four or five hundred yards then then our regular dope chart's going to be plenty for you because the atmospherics don't really start impacting things until 550 or 600 yards and so most guys aren't going to shoot that far um but the rifles are certainly capable yeah um going back to your question about the the cartridges and what we selected. And, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and, and I kind of had to go back to, you know, my experience with, um, competition rifle shooting and and even archery, you know, I mean, there's the old 280 foot per second rule with, with bows and fixed blade broadheads. And, and while you can certainly stretch that a little bit, um, you know bows are getting better all the time broadhead designs are getting better but i still feel like you know most of the best shooting bows i've ever had from a hunting perspective and a target perspective were in that range and i think that similarly kind of holds true with rifles and it's the the mid-capacity cartridges that are just more inherently more accurate and you know guys will argue that and say there's there's no such thing but it comes down to a couple of of factors with long range rifles and and one is consistency of velocity and you've got to have a a rifle or a cartridge that will repeat consistently with velocity. I'm talking, you know, it's really nice when you, when you have standard deviations of, you know, single digits, you know, seven, eight, nine feet a second over. And I'm not talking a three. I see so many guys that, post stuff online of you know they'll shoot three shots you know and and their magneto speed or their their lab radar will you know show a you know a 10 foot a second spread or something like that but i'm talking about 10 shots you know and and extreme spreads of you know seven or eight feet a second and a, a standard deviation of two or three that's what i'm looking for and so you know if I'm sending these, these rifles out to guys, I really want them to have the absolute best chance of hitting their target. And so I picked cartridges that the best 1,000-yard bench rest shooters, the guys that are setting world records and, and local you know winning local matches and, and setting state records and stuff, they're shooting 7-SOM, they're shooting 300-WSM. Those cartridges are just known to be relatively easy to tune, uh, extremely consistent from a shot-to-shot-to-shot velocity standpoint. And there's a tremendous selection of good, high-quality bullets in those cartridges. And then the 6.5 PRC is another just really good, solid uh, cartridge design it's a little bit more of a hot rod it has almost the same capacity as a seven SOM and it's it's obviously a six five so that one's a little bit hotter but it's um you know testing has shown that it's very consistent and just a really good all-around uh cartridge and six five and and really you need a little bit more velocity to to uh, reach out and touch them with a six five um on on bigger game and it wouldn't be my first choice for elk, but it's a great, you know, deer cartridge, sheep, you know, a lot of those medium-sized game, the 6.5 is great for, but, Mm. so that's kind of, kind of where we went as as far as picking those. And then the 6.5 Creedmoor is a, is a really good, you know, medium range uh, deer and antelope cartridge. It's really low recoil, very, you know, well known for its ability to to uh, shoot accurately, and and we get really good um, results from an accuracy and, and velocity stability standpoint with that cartridge as well. So,
0: so if a guy's like, say, he calls you up, he's looking to rent, and it's purposely for elk, um, you'd steer more towards the seven Psalm than the six five PRC, for example. Then
1: I would, depending on you know the conditions that he was planning on hunting up, you know, in if right. he was planning on shooting stuff across a canyon that was. You know, six hundred or seven hundred yards wide i'd I'd definitely push them to the seven psalm or the three hundred wSM. You know I mean, there is no doubt that uh, and I don't think anybody that 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 knows what they're talking about would argue differently that that bigger is better, especially on animals that are as tough as elk. Um, they can take a lot and uh, putting a bigger hole in them, delivering a little more energy to knock them off their feet. Um, there's, there's really no substitute for that, but again, we have to balance that with your ability to control recoil and, um, you know, the, just the inherent accuracy of the rifle. And so we, we were just aiming for the perfect balance of, you know, hunting performance, ballistic performance, accuracy, uh, ability to control the recoil. And so that's, you know, where we landed on these cartridges, but they're, we're running really heavy bullets for, for caliber, in all of these, um, the 300, we're running the 215-grain burger hybrid. Uh, the 7-SOM, we're running either the 175 ELDX or the 180-grain burgers in in uh, those. Um, and the 6.5 PRCs, we're running the 143 or the 147 uh, Hornady bullets in those. So uh, we're, we're kind of maximizing um, you know the ballistic efficiency of with those longer, heavier um, projectiles, and then also you know maximizing the weight um, in a given caliber to deliver the most energy you know for those hunting situations,
0: You know the rifles come, you rent a rifle from you, it comes with the ammunition. Um, is that something that you're personally loading, having outsourced, or are these just factory options that you found that worked well?
1: In some cases, we're using factory. In fact, the uh, my six five Creedmoor shoots unbelievably with factory ammo. It, it almost kind of made me mad because the thing will shoot one whole <laughs> one whole groups with with factory Hornady ammo. And and um, no, actually that that was that was nice, and that allows me to rent that rifle a little bit cheaper because I don't have to spend the time to develop a load. But and the ammo is a little bit cheaper. But um, so I developed... The loads for, for most of our custom rifles, and then I outsource the loading to uh, unknown munitions up in North Idaho. Uh, they do a fantastic job. They use the same equipment that I use to load my um, target ammunition with the best scales and you know the best presses and dies, and and I can send them a a um, a sample round so that they can match um, the seating depth and everything exactly. So 'll send them a dummy round and and uh, give them the powder charge and, and everything else and and uh, they do a tremendous job of loading extremely consistent ammo it's as, as good as I can load you know one at a time here and and they load them generally one at a time also they don't they're not uh, typically using progressive presses or anything like that so they're essentially um, custom hand loaders up there and they've got some some of their own off-the-shelf ammunition that are great options for people but um really cool business model um one of the only places that'll you know you can send them a recipe and they'll load your stuff for you um and they've got access to the best brass and the best powders and you know all that kind of stuff so it's a uh, really cool company and guys should definitely check them out if if uh they're not into reloading um these guys can can uh do a lot of that stuff for you
2: yeah
0: yeah we've certainly filed their stuff i think steve you've run some of their stuff right
2: uh i haven't shot it yet but yeah i did order some stuff up from them so awesome they're good guys
0: yeah we could keep you on here for four more hours darren but i guess we're just gonna have to have (laughs) you back for a fourth episode instead um you the mission is to get steve into actually breaking out his reloading equipment so We'll have to maybe recoup (laughs) after we get Steve up and running and and talk about that process. Uh, But man, thanks so much for the time today.
1: You bet. It was a pleasure being on. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, talk about the business and uh, where things are going there.
0: Yeah, and just tell people one more time the website. And uh, I know you guys, we talked about the rifles, obviously, but you mentioned up front you got uh shelters, spotting scopes, you know, uh the range finding systems, packs. So uh where guys go to check all that out.
1: Yeah, we're at dot um, rgunsandgear.com. That's letter r guns, letter n gear dot com. You can also find us, I think there's a link that at rentgunsandgear.com that'll take you there as well. And then um you can find us on Instagram at, at rentgunsandgear and um i'm sure you can search for us and find us on facebook too if you got any questions you can send questions to me at uh, info at our
0: well that's a wrap on this one guys as always thank you for tuning in you can reach us directly via email to podcast at com. if you're enjoying the show it would help us tremendously if you told a friend your hunting buddy or left us a review in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you find these shows. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to be a part of this and appreciate your feedback. Again, you can email us directly to podcast at Xomountgear.com and we will talk to you soon.